BC Premier John Horgan shocked many, including his governing partners in the Green Party, when he called a snap election last month. And while many felt voters would punish Horgan and the NDP for heading to the polls during a pandemic, breaking an agreement with the Greens in the process, the NDP now has a majority government. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Vancouver Sun legislative columnist Rob Shaw joins me to talk about the motivation behind calling an early election, why the NDP didn't take a hit politically, and what it means now that Horgan has a majority government. Don't forget you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about the show. So Rob, for Canadians who may not have been paying attention, British Columbia just went through a bit of a surprise election. But before we talk about kind of where things are at now that that campaign and that vote is over, can you take listeners back five weeks? I know that Premier John Horgan was three years into a minority government and seemed to be everything was going fairly smoothly. So where was the NDP government of BC at about five weeks ago? Yeah, well, it was going fairly smoothly. You know, there was no real acrimony that uh, had developed between the power-sharing partners here in BC, the BC Greens and the BC NDP, at least not publicly. And in fact, John Horgan had just delivered his economic recovery plan for the province, which had more than a billion dollars of spending in it that we'd been waiting to see his government outline for several months. It was a a big moment of here's our plan for the future. Here's where we want to go. Here's some help for businesses and people and that type of thing. So in that sense, you know, it was a government that was doing work on the pandemic that pretty much everyone in the province, opinion polls would indicate was supportive of how it was handling the crisis. And it was getting ready to move into the next phase. And then all of a sudden, boom, there is a snap election virtually out of nowhere. There's a lot of behind the scenes rumbles, but it just came out literally in the matter of just a couple hours on a on a morning and uh, and everyone went off to the races. When do we start hearing rumblings about the possibility of an election in BC? And what was the talk just around like the probability of one being called given that the country and, and the province is, is in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, well, we're not doing so great on COVID-19 in BC now, but we were doing a lot better just a month or two ago. And at that point, that's when the NDP strategists behind the scenes started musing about, well, perhaps we can call an election. BC is leading the country in its response. It's doing quite well. The premier is quite popular. Perhaps now is the time to go. And the strategists behind the scenes had kind of envisioned a window for the Horgan government to call an election if they could get it done before Halloween. That was the window. And at any time after that, they viewed it as too risky because you're entering flu season, people are indoors, it's cold weather, and the COVID cases are expected to rise, which we are seeing is now happening. I think we knew the idea might be there that the Horgan government was considering this. It started to get really serious just in the week or two prior to the actual election call when cabinet ministers began announcing they weren't running again. And when you watch politics, when ministers come out publicly and say, I'm not running in the next election and become lame duck ministers, Mm -hmm. they only do that for one reason. And that's because they have to. They have to get off the fence and announce their plans. And so the question at that point became, are they doing that so that the, the premier can shuffle his cabinet and he can get a bunch of new faces on the front bench 
and then go to an election in the spring, maybe after his budget in February that could be as a kind of launching pad for a spring election. And that's where a lot of us anticipated what was happening. And instead, he got his ministers out and then within just a handful of days started the launch and went right to it. So that was a bit of a surprise. I think the spring was looking more likely and then the NDP just decided to pull the pin on the fall and get it out of the way, as the premier said. Is my understanding is correct. The NDP had what essentially was a power sharing agreement with the Greens in that the Greens agreed to support the NDP. But part of that deal was not holding an election until next year. If that's correct, how did John Horgan get around that? Yeah, well, it is correct. Uh, The deal in writing signed with his very own hand was that there wouldn't be an election in British Columbia until the fall of 2021. And the way he got around that is just by taking the document and ripping it into shreds. I mean, there's no (laughs) fancy maneuver here. There's no great legal argument or brilliant strategy. It's a document that was never legally binding. And therefore, when the politics hits the fan, it just uh, disappears into the waste paper bin. And so that caught the Greens off guard because we built this document up as this kind of central, important pivot point for politics in British Columbia, that this confidence and supply agreement that... John Horgan had signed and former Green leader Andrew Weaver had signed with much fanfare. They put it in these fancy binders and they walked it to government house for the lieutenant governor and they gave it to her prior to bringing the previous liberal government down. And they talked about how important it was. And it was important until it wasn't important. And then it was just a piece of paper and poof, off it went. And so that betrayal, as the Greens put it, formed a lot of their election campaign pointing to John Horgan and saying, can you trust this guy? Can you trust a guy who signs his word beside a promise and breaks it because he can see a better outcome for himself? Of all the issues here in British Columbia, that was the weakest point for the NDP because they had no comeback. They had no explanation. They broke their word and they tried to kind of fudge a little bit around it and blame the Greens. And well, we we did this because we had to because you're such horrible people. (laughs) That never went anywhere either. Uh, People looked at the Greens and said, well, we like the Greens. You know, the election results have borne out the fact that the the public here likes the Green Party. And the NDP tried to turn them into supervillains in the span of just a few hours after the election call, making a bunch of different things up about how the Greens did this and the Greens, we couldn't do that. The Greens were very mean to us and the Greens didn't want to work with us. And the Greens turned around and said, well, actually, we met with you just a day or two before the election call when we gave you a letter saying you have our support and here's a list of areas we can work together and of all the issues in the election, that was where the NDP was weakest. And um, it didn't seem to to really bother people in the end. But the one part of public sentiment it couldn't carry with them was this idea we need to wipe the Greens off the face of the electoral map, which was the ultimate goal of the NDP, and they couldn't get it done. Essentially, was that the ultimate ballot question for the NDP? I mean, the ballot question for the Greens was, can you trust the NDP? Look at what they did to us in this agreement that we had. But what what was the reasoning for the NDP to go to the polls other than to consolidate power? That's pretty much it. They saw the Greens in a weak position because they just had their leadership race four days before Horgan called the election. So the leader had just started uh, leading. Uh, they saw the liberals, the opposition liberals here in a weak position because no one knew who their leader is, partly because that leader, Andrew Wilkinson, chose to work with the NDP in a nonpartisan way during the height of the pandemic. So he took a backward step from politics, which helped the NDP position him as a nobody who knows nothing and you don't even know who he is. And so in some ways, all of the people working with the NDP 
ended up getting screwed over by the NDP. <laughs> that became part of the ballot box question, but in the end, the ballot box question here was just, hey, are you comfortable with us continuing to do what we're doing in this crisis that no one could ever have imagined? Are you okay with what we're doing? And people kind of said, yeah, we're okay. And the liberals never managed to really get a sense of what the change they were looking for the public to rally behind was. Why change horses in the middle of a crisis? Mm -hmm. What is wrong with how the NDP has done this? And quietly, the liberals would even admit that the NDP did a pretty good job during the height of the pandemic. So it was an important question, the trustworthiness of the NDP, but it didn't end up forming, I think, the public response. And maybe in an, in an ordinary situation, it would be such a cynical, calculating, cold-blooded political maneuver to execute your best friends and strike at the weakest moment early to seize power. But in this dynamic we live in now in COVID, where no one's paying attention to politics and people are worried about more important things, they just kind of shrugged and went, meh. Okay, well, I still like John Horgan. He seems like a nice guy. That's why the NDP focused its entire election campaign around John Horgan. Mm -hmm. Didn't say NDP on the podium sign. She said John Horgan. People like John Horgan, most popular premier in Canada. Don't even vote NDP. Just vote John Horgan. Just think about <laughs> John Horgan when you go to the ballot box, you know? And that's why they did it. It wasn't about them and the party and their platform, which no one read. It was about John Horgan, Mr. Popular. Going into this campaign, and once they announced that there was a campaign, it seemed like the, that was kind of one of the key issues. It was the idea that John Horgan's popularity is going up against the notion that you can't call an election in the middle of a pandemic. And mm. this is one of three provincial elections that we've seen since COVID-19 started. There was New Brunswick and Saskatchewan just had their election this week as well. And over the weekend, there was the BC's election. There was concern that voters might turn around and punish anybody who dares call an election in the middle of a pandemic. But as we've seen, that hasn't played out that way. Why do you suppose that was the case in BC where voters didn't punish the incumbents for calling an election? I think it's because we have Dr. Bonnie Henry out here who came out from the beginning and loaned her credibility to the NDP to say it was safe to have an election. And she didn't have to do that, but she chose to do it and said, uh, I think we can safely have an election here. I'm working with Elections BC. Elections BC came out and said, yes, we've got a safe plan. By the way, you can vote by mail. And that's an easy way to do this. Democracy is important. Vote by mail. And you had this push back at the beginning from very trustworthy figures in the province saying, it's okay to vote. Don't panic. We can do this. We are now through the election. And we had in British Columbia the lowest voter turnout in history. Wow. If you had said that at the beginning of the election that, you know, no one's going to vote, I think that would have given the NDP pause. But instead, what happened is a number of popular and trustworthy people said, it's okay, we can do this. And there was a huge demand from vote by mail packages, just an enormous demand. So more, more than 700,000 packages were requested. We only had 2 million people vote in the last election. So you have this big rush, it becomes, you know, kind of cool to vote by mail, get your package, all these ads are out there, Elections BC saying, don't worry. And I think that really neutered a little bit of the criticism that is this safe to do? What are we doing here? Why are we doing this? And in the end, there was a suppressed vote that worked in the NDP's favor. We didn't have an election campaign where the opposition leader was able to travel the province and hold rallies mm -hmm. and hold events and meet people and kiss babies and shake hands. And, you know, the NDP would like to say, well, the Liberals, people don't like them, which is probably true. There's a lot to say to that, too. But 
it, it put the Liberals in a horrendously difficult position to try and whip up the vote. And in the end, no, nobody really whipped up the vote. And that suppression benefited the NDP. In the end, ultimately, how big a majority did John Horgan and the NDP end up winning? Yeah, well, it's their biggest majority they've ever had. You know, this is a center-right province, British Columbia, and the NDP have only won government in elections four times. They didn't even win the last election. They just managed to bring the Greens alongside and get the votes needed to defeat the Liberals. Mm -hmm. So they went from somewhere in the ballpark of 41 seats to 55 seats in this election. It's more than they've ever had before. You know, there was a period where the NDP really struck the public sentiment in 1991. They defeated the old social credit party here in British Columbia, the last kind of center-right party, and they got 51 seats. Now they're at 55. So it's the best showing they've ever had. It's one of the worst showings the BC Liberals have ever had. And they're down to 29 seats, and they were up as high as 43 in the last election, you know, in the 50s earlier than that. And it just shows you how the fortunes can change so quickly for a political party that they seem unstoppable right now. And yet, not that long ago, the NDP were almost wiped off the map in 2001. They only had two seats here. Mm -hmm. So people kind of are trying to understand that. Has our electoral landscape changed? Are we no longer a center-right province that's been dominated by the business and the liberal and conservatives, small L, small C's um, parties coming together and creating one tent and winning every election? Is that Have we changed a little bit? And people, some people are wondering about that. What does this mean for the demographics and the kind of voter turnout in British Columbia? Are there more environmental concerns? Are there more young voters who are renters, more dense urban populations? And there's going to be a lot of strategists sifting through these tea leaves of these results to figure that out. What does it mean for a party like the Liberals, who, as you say, kind of was a, a big tent for conservative-leaning British Columbians and liberal-leaning British Columbians? What does it mean for them going forward? Is it going to be a lot of soul-searching for them, or is it a case of, you know, we're going to lick our wounds, but this wasn't the right election for us to fight because of all the COVID restrictions, and our leader didn't exactly click with the right people? Yeah, well, there's a number of ways into that. I think they ran a horrendous campaign. It didn't begin from the point of apologizing to voters for getting it wrong in the last election, which is what a lot of people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the Liberals say, you know, we left $2 billion unspent on the table in our 2017 election campaign. That was money that the Liberals should have spent on helping people with childcare and housing, skyrocketing housing prices and that type of thing. And the Liberals never have acknowledged that they really did that wrong. They lost public trust there. And so they just kind of wandered into this campaign thinking all they needed to do was win a couple more seats and they brought out a platform that was a mixture of stealing the NDP's ideas, including $10 a day childcare, which they just flat out stole. Just said, yeah, we're going to do that. But didn't say why they hadn't done it before. They had a gigantic promise to eliminate our provincial sales tax, kind of like in Alberta, which would cost is the single biggest revenue source for the budget, $7 billion. And they said, we're going to get rid of it for a year. And it shocked people because this is a center-right party that has been um, you know, fiscal managers, good fiscal managers. That's his whole brand. Mm -hmm. And to duff the budget so far into the red on one promise caught people by surprise. So there was those campaign issues. The Liberals now are in a position of being pushed out of Metro Vancouver. This orange wave pretty much wiped them out there. They've started to lose seats in the rural parts of the Fraser Valley, which used to be Liberal strongholds. And they're primarily a party now of interior and northern seats small town British Columbia, which is not the future 
of forming government in British Columbia. They have no longer any seats on Vancouver Island, and they don't contend in most of Metro Vancouver. So their question is going to be, how do you rebuild a party that appeals to urban voters while maintaining your rural base? And that's going to bring some very uncomfortable questions for them. We saw a few of them in the campaign. What do you do with homophobes in your party, Mm -hmm. which exist in the Liberal Party and came up in the campaign? One uh, anti-LGBTQ MLA who just created numerous problems for the party, and they couldn't figure out how to disavow his comments while also maintaining the conservative wing of the party, you know, but appealing to the liberals and not looking like a bunch of out of touch old white dudes. And they do not have a solution for that. And the question for them is going to be, is there still a place within the party for the social conservatives? Yeah. Uh, Or or is that not doable in this province at this point right now? If you want to run on anti-abortion, if you want to run on being against pride uh, rainbow crosswalks in the community, if you want to compare, which one liberal candidate did, if you want to compare free contraception to eugenics, you may not have a place in the Liberal Party. And it sounds stupid, but those are ridings, rural religious ridings that the Liberals have relied on for years. Mm-hmm. And when they lose them, they lose seats. And then they wonder if they can continue on. That's going to be a big question for them going forward. Now, one of the things I found interesting is that after the election winner and in the run-up to his election win, John Horgan was talking about how he would govern with a majority. And he talked about how when he was in opposition, he didn't like the fact that the opposition would bring forward ideas and the governing liberals would just kind of say, oh yeah, yeah go away. This is our show. Leave us alone. Yeah. And he talked about wanting to be a more conciliatory premier. How does he reconcile that with the fact that to kick off the election campaign, he had to do one of the least conciliatory things that you can think of doing, which is tearing up an agreement he had made with one of the other parties. How does he balance those two ideas out? It was very much an ends justify the means exercise in political strategy that you use every dirty trick you can possibly in the book to achieve an outcome of stability, which you can then turn around and say, well, don't worry, we're not really those people. We're much nicer than that. John Horgan has been involved in politics a long time. He was a staffer, including a chief of staff to some NDP premiers in the 1990s who ran their majority governments like dictatorships. And that led the way to the 2000s BC Liberal governments, which ran their majority governments like dictatorships, a bunch of backbench MLAs who do nothing, cabinet ministers of varying levels of importance in a premier's office where all the power is concentrated. And if you have an idea from the opposition in the House, you can just go take that and stuff it right in the trash. If you have an amendment on a bill, feel free to go pound sand on that amendment, because you're not getting a moment in the House to do it. So in that sense, you know, I have a wait and see attitude on what John Horgan's going to do with ultimate power. That old line that ultimate power corrupts absolutely. You have a dominant control of the House. You don't need to give an inch on anything. Mm -hmm. You don't need to give your opponents time to speak. Is he going to do that out of the goodwill of his heart? Or is he going to turn into a guy who represents everything he hated in opposition? Because he did used to get so upset as an opposition MLA and leader, John Horgan, that his ideas were just dismissed out of hand. Well, you're, you're from the wrong party. So, you know, amendment denied. Mm-hmm. And he would just fume about it. I remember talking to him in the hallways about how this isn't democracy. We shouldn't run things this way. Just because they won doesn't mean everything in their platform is correct. There's, you know, 40% of the popular vote that voted for somebody else. And now he's in the opposite position. And I have a hard time imagining that the New Democrats, many of the people here are Alberta New Democrats too. They've come over to work for this BC government, are going to proactively and cooperatively 
extend an olive branch to their enemies and you know incorporate them into the decision making process. I've been doing this for 13 years now covering PC politics. I haven't seen it happen yet. So <laughs> it's possible, I guess. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I expect this NDP government will run just like the previous governments of other parties. Well, now that he has the reins, what is it that he feels he can get done more freely now that he doesn't have to rely on other parties for support? What is it that he wanted to do? Is it fiscal issues? Is it deficit spending? Like, Where could the NDP go now that he has a majority? It's a good question because his fiscal plan was supported by the other two parties. They unanimously supported his emergency spending measures. So when you look at what he's proposed to do to fight COVID, you don't find any disagreement from the other two parties. And then the question is more about what did he say during the election that he will do that the Greens wouldn't let him? And he's gone back to some issues from the 2017 campaign, $10 a day childcare, which he wanted to do, but the Greens said, why don't we call it something else? And we'll call it universal childcare and we'll work towards that. And so John Horgan's resurrected that and said, the Greens wouldn't let me do it, even though it's basically the same thing. And so we're going to bring back $10 a day childcare. And that was one thing he said he wants to do. And there's a couple other minor things here and there, but there was no great agenda plan here that wasn't supported by anyone. And now we're kind of looking at the NDP platform, which contains such election item goodies as $1,000 in cash for voters if you vote New Democrat as a COVID household uh, stimulus package. So everyone's going to get up to a grand. That's one thing he's going to do and the other parties didn't agree on and executing the rest of his transit agenda and some other miscellaneous things. Look. Nobody read the NDP platform in this election. Nobody voted on the NDP platform. <laughs> it's very clear from the polling numbers that the results we got at the end were the same as the results we got at the beginning. And NDP strategists, when you talk to them, will tell you not a single issue resonated through the fog of COVID. It was an election fought on healthcare, pandemic response, and the trustworthiness you have in a leader in a crisis. And to that extent, the NDP is going to have to grapple with, do they execute everything in the platform that they produced, which no one read? And do they believe that they have a mandate to do that? I guess they do. They have a big majority. They can do whatever they want. Do they govern themselves and moderate themselves a little bit out of recognition that maybe not everyone voted for every idea they had? I've never seen a government do that yet. They tend to view this as kind of a total blank check support when you win an election for everything you ever came up with at any point in time. And it's a real big question going forward as to what the NDP thinks voters elected it to do versus what it would like to do now that it doesn't have to cooperate with anyone versus the image that it has given British Columbians here, which is a moderate New Democrat, not an old school leftist pro-union shop. It was a moderate, almost kind of liberal style government. And are they going to continue that or go back or what are they going to do? There are no answers to that, but it will be the story of this government, how they sort of interpret what they think voters want them to do. I guess we'll see how that shakes out over the coming months. Rob, thanks for your time. No problem. Take care. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Rob Shaw. More from him at VancouverSun.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>